When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm Joe Reed, and this is a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. It's always a good day when another audiobook written by Brad Meltzer and narrated by Scott Brick is released. Theirs is a long partnership, two decades and almost 20 books long, encompassing a range of books from thrillers to YA to history. Well, this week we're being gifted with a new book of nonfiction co-written by Brad and Josh Mensch, titled The Nazi Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill, and it's narrated brilliantly by Golden Voice Scott Brick. The Allies have planned this long-anticipated meeting of the Big Three, the leaders of the United States, the United Kingdom, and the Soviet Union. Knowing that this meeting in Tehran represents the best and perhaps only chance for Allied powers to implement a military strategy to finally cripple Nazi Germany and put an end to the war that has caused such suffering around the world. Planning and executing this strategy will be a mammoth undertaking that will require global military coordination at an unprecedented scale. Millions of lives depend on the success of this conference. Probably tens of millions. If the Nazis have their way, these three world leaders won't leave the city alive, and the Allied hopes for victory will die with them. It's not an exaggeration. The survival of nations is at stake. There are reasons these two work so well together. And I was lucky enough to sit down with Brad Meltzer and Scott Brick to talk about their long and successful collaboration. When my grandmother years ago was going blind and deaf, the only books, before anyone was really into audiobooks, she could only use an audiobook because she just couldn't see anymore. So she could hear a little, but she couldn't see. And I gave her Scott's first recording that he ever did, a thriller of mine called The First Council. Mm -hmm. And I waited for her reply, and she said, Darling, I got to tell you, he sounds handsome. (laughs) And that's when I knew we had our guy. That was it. He has told me that story so many times, Joe. And uh, whenever we exchange a a text or an email, and I let him know, Hey, I'm getting started in the studio pretty quick. And he'll text back, and he'll say, You sound handsome as ever. (laughs) (laughs) You know, your fictional books, Brad, are thrillers, and your nonfiction books for adults look at 
different conspiracies or secret histories. I know the titles, each of the titles has conspiracy in it, but it's such a freighted word now. And what you do is deep down history. You're you're just poking a flashlight into a closet. And I want you to tell me how you happened upon the Nazi conspiracy. Yeah, you know, you, you hit it right on the head. I, I, the word conspiracy has become something terrible these days, right? We used to be starved for truth, and now we've turned it into misinformation. And we're a culture that has more access to information than any before it, but the hardest thing to find today is the truth. And that that's actually devastating to me. So we pride ourselves on each of these books as showing you the real history. There's 50 pages of footnotes at the end of them. We found the secret plot to kill George Washington at the uh, beginning of the Revolutionary War, which was the first conspiracy. We did the secret plot to kill Abraham Lincoln with the Lincoln conspiracy before John Wilkes Booth at the start of his presidency, the first plot to murder him. And then we found this story, the Nazi conspiracy about a secret plot, and it's all true, to kill FDR and Stalin and Churchill at the height of World War II. And I found this story years ago, and it was just a little online mention of it, this this quick story. And I said, is this real? What's going on here? And of course, as always, I went down the rabbit hole and started finding out there really is a kind of almost misinformation campaign around it. Half the people will tell you that you know, Hitler himself was jumping out of a plane with a knife in his teeth trying to kill them. The other half will say, no, this was a Russian decoy plot. And I was just determined to find the truth. And the Nazi conspiracy is us literally pulling apart the history of World War II to see what really happened on those days when Adolf Hitler was trying to truly uh, kill the big three in their first official meeting. It was an extraordinary book, and you really take us through the history of the war, but also of the rise of Nazism in Germany. And and Scott, you're called upon in this book to deliver this history, and it's a different kind of narration, I would think, from narrating one of Brad's thrillers. Can you talk a little bit about the difference there and, and sort of what you had to bring to the Nazi conspiracy? Sure, absolutely. It is a little bit different. Uh, I think when you're working on a nonfiction book, I think there's always a, a subtext going on. I, I would call it, as the narrator, it would be my inner monologue. And the inner monologue is always, this really happened. You know, it's, it's seeing somebody in a bar, running into them at a restaurant, uh, bumping into them on the street. And even even if you're in this really loud environment, you still think, oh, wait a minute, you don't know this story. I have this story I need to tell you because you don't know it now, but your life will be better once you do know it and understand it. You know, whenever I'm working with new narrators, I always, I always encourage them to channel the author's excitement for the story, the, the reason that, that they chose to write this book in particular. And, you know, it, look, it doesn't hurt that I've narrated a dozen thrillers that Brad has written. And, you know, that's, I think, the, the wonderful thing about the writing on these books is that uh, all three of the conspiracy titles, it's that, you know, Brad comes at this from a thriller writer's mentality. He knows how to write nonfiction as though it were fiction. And it's all the more glorious that it actually happened. I'll tell you, please don't tell the publisher this, but every time one of these comes from Brad and Josh, I, it's like a paid vacation. I mean, I would do these for free. Again, please don't tell them that. I like to get paid. But uh, I learn so much while I work on these books that it just doesn't 
feel like work at all. Pacing. Pacing is so important in fiction and nonfiction. And there's pacing in the way you write it. And then, Scott, there's decisions you make in the way you narrate it. So, Brad, can you talk about how you set the tone for, let's say, the Nazi conspiracy for your nonfiction? It is different from your fiction, like your Zigginola books, for example. Yeah, no, it's very different. I can tell you this is a good story, still a good story. And it always must be, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. So for these history books, for the Nazi conspiracy, we open up and we're in Tehran, Iran, and the presidential motorcade is moseying through the center of town. And everyone's lined up because they all want to see the president of the United States and everyone's waving and the president waves back. And then you find out that that's not the president of all. That is not Franklin Delano Roosevelt in that motorcade. And you see that FDR is actually ducked down in the back of a different car, that big motorcade is a decoy. He's actually hidden down. The president of the United States in the height of World War II is hidden down in the back of a car, chasing a Jeep through the side streets on the edge of town because they want to make sure he's not killed on the way there to the Russian embassy. I read that story, and you can put that chronologically in the middle of the book where it happens, but I treat it like a thriller and say, I just, and I'll tell you, I just ruined chapter one of the Nazi conspiracy for you. That's chapter one. And for me, the pacing is vital. If I put everything in order chronologically, it, it starts reading like an encyclopedia entry. But if I can pull the hero's and the villain's motivations out, and I can pull that subtext out, I think Scott said it perfectly. And I, I'd love to hear his answer to this question you just asked. We have an entire subtext that's running through this book, which is, why do people fall for authoritarian figures? Why are we still fighting Nazis here in 2023? Why is this battle still going on? That's the subtext that you're asking. We're not just telling you this old historical thing. Old history is only interesting when it informs modern history and modern day times. And so all of that is going into the pacing, making you ask that question and and, and that's the trick. That is the magic trick, is, is not just turning it into an encyclopedia entry, but turning this real history into a thriller. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And Scott, for you as the narrator, embodying or invoicing the tone that Brad sets forth in that book. I learned a lesson years ago while working on a thriller. Uh, it was very early on in my career. I likened it to the movie Jurassic Park or the, the book as well, obviously, um, it seemed like a thrill ride. It seemed like a roller coaster, that there was a gradual ratcheting up of tension. And you could almost hear the clickety-clack, clickety-clack, clickety-clack as the roller coaster, as you know, as the car was, was starting to crest uh, the rise. And then, of course, you would just, you know, suddenly the pace would pick up and you know, my pace uh, would, would pick up as well to reflect that. And... Um, I remember the director I was working with that day, he gets on the talk back in the studio and I, I can still, John Renette is his name, and I can still hear him saying, hey, uh, Scott, can you, uh, can you slow down a little bit? 
And I thought, oh, oh, right. Well, maybe I, maybe I mistimed the peak. And so I waited and I thought, okay, well, then now is the peak. And now I'll increase my pace because that seems to be what the author wants. And again, I sped up. And again, I hear John get on the talkback and saying, yeah, uh, could you just slow that down a little bit? And when we had broken for lunch, he asked me if I wanted to know why he kept interrupting me. And I said, yeah, it was really confusing. And he said, when the pace picks up, you need to slow down. It's counterintuitive, but it's creating tension for the audience. They're not getting what they want. And the fact of the matter is, you know, Brad and Josh have crafted this amazing story, and everybody reading the print version or listening to the audiobook wants to get the information as fast as humanly possible. But if I slow down just a little bit, it will ratchet up the tension and give a, an even keener sense of anticipation for what's coming next. That's, that's kind of always been my default position when I'm changing the pace in a book. And it's amazing that it can work as well in a, uh, in a thriller as well as a nonfiction title. What's fascinating, though, about that, I just have to say, is that's my rule for writing. Mm. You and I have never talked about this all these years. We know each other, two decades now. But my rule in writing is when it gets to the best parts, you slow it down. Whatever the reader wants, you slow it down. And so I always know in the most action-packed moment in the entire book, like when whatever the big thing has to happen is, like if it's a car chase, we're going to go slower than you've ever gone before. And, and it's funny, I don't think about it, but I've noticed it over the years. And so, you know, you're just picking up and you're doing it on the audio side. I'm doing it on the writing side. But I mean, we have the same intentions for that reader, for that listener. And that is you're never going to get what you want at the pace you want it. We're going to make it even better. I love that. I never knew that. You're right. We've known each other how long now? And I, I never knew that that's, that was your approach to the writing. I'll sometimes do the same thing with volume. I'll get softer as things get louder, just because it seems like it's a, it's a way into the character's head. And um, again, it's, it's counterintuitive. It's not getting the people what they want when they want it or as loud as they want it, but it seems effective. So I've seen you do the voice one and it's so effective as well. Like when you get down low, I used to have this recurring nightmare when I was little and someone's going to wind up sending an email and kind of psychoanalyze me, but it was, <laughs> uh, I was shrunk down really small. And then the babysitter would put me in the palm of her hand and then would bring me in her hand to her mouth and start talking really softly and then would slowly get louder and louder and louder. But that change in volume was terrifying, especially when she got down really small and low. And it is such an effective tool that I don't have as a writer. You have as a narrator. I wish I had that one. I have one palette to paint with, which is words, but you have that not just the pace, but you have the volume to play with as well. It's it's such a wonderful trick you use so well. How much are you two in touch at all about the audiobooks? Do you let Scott know what's coming, Brad? Like, oh, I'm writing this conspiracy about the Nazi plot to kill FDR, Churchill, and Stalin? Or Scott, do you reach out to Brad and say, whoa, I just got this history? And what's the communication like? 
The funny thing was in the beginning, when we first met, we used to actually talk a lot. And there's the inevitable beginning of every book where he'll, especially in the fiction where he'll say, uh, how do I pronounce this name or that name or the other? And, And Scott knows in every single book, I'll put some obscure kind of accent. Like there was a point where I said, I think I put a Bulgarian accent. I don't even know what it was, <laughs> but I just to see what he could do just to mess with him. Um, the reality is, is Scott is so big and famous right now that we, and, and I'm joking, but cause he is so big and famous, but we've been at this so long and I, I can't say this about almost anybody I work with, but I just trust him. I have one rule when it comes to our audiobooks. Scott Brick is the one who's recording them. And and I will I, it is worth mentioning the first two books that I ever wrote, Scott did not do. I didn't know him. I didn't really love the narrators on them. They just didn't do a great job. I remember being so excited when the cassettes, because they were cassettes back then, came in. And I thought, my name's on a cassette and it's not even a mixtape I made. This is great. And I put it on. It just sounded like nothing I ever wanted it to sound like. And the second book, same thing. They they hired this woman who was she was good, but it just didn't have the sensibility that I kind of thought it should have. And then Scott came in book three. And I remember listening to the beginning of it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is how I read it in my head, but it's better. It sounds better. It's better than what I imagined. And and I went back and and said, you know, I asked for them to have Scott redo my first and second book, which he has. He's done the entire catalog. But my only rule is, is bring in Scott and just get out of the way. He knows he doesn't need me to mess him up. Brad, I'm going to cut you off. You've only got maybe 35 more minutes to say nice things about me. But then again, I'm cutting (laughs) you right off. Uh, Bless you for saying that. This is something I don't think I've ever told Brad. But yes, the very first time I worked on one of Brad's titles was the first council. And I was brand new in my career. I had been flown to New York and I was at this new studio, working with people I'd never worked with before, and using a technique, uh, a recording technique, uh, called the punch and roll, which has since become kind of an industry standard, but I didn't know it at the time. I was I was learning on the fly. And when I looked at this first page of chapter one, there was one run-on sentence that filled the entire page. And to par- to paraphrase poorly, it was, I'm afraid of spiders. You know, I'm afraid of evil clowns. I'm afraid of the, the, the thing that sleeps under my bed at night. I'm afraid of disappointing my father. I'm afraid of letting down my mother, you know. And it goes through this long list of things that this character is admitting. I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid of that. I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid of that. But then he gets to the end of the first page and he says, but I'm not afraid of power, which is why I work in the White House. And it was such a marvelous setup. But I was so worried about this recording technique that I wasn't paying enough attention to the words. And it took about a week to record it. We get to the end of the week. And I said to the director, hey, I need to redo the opening page. And he didn't want to. He tried to talk me out of it. He said, no, you don't. You did it right. I was like, no. I pronounced all the words right, I got them in the right order, but that doesn't make it right. I didn't have a feeling for that character yet. I wasn't connected to the text. I said, I need to re-record it. And he seriously gave me like one of these big old fine kind of size. And I re-recorded it and 10 years go by and I'm at a function at uh, Book Expo and Brad is talking about how 
he and I got together, you know, basically. And he said, I knew when I set out that challenge for him, that long page, I knew it was a challenge, but I knew that if he got it, then he got me. And I think back how close that I came to, to not getting it. And I'm just grateful every day that that director finally, that I finally cowed him into submission and, uh, and redid it because it makes all the difference in the world. You have to connect to the text. You just do. I'm afraid of heights, snakes, normalcy, mediocrity, Hollywood, the initial silence of an empty house, the enduring darkness of a poorly lit street, evil clowns, professional failure, the intellectual impact of Barbie dolls, Letting my father down, being paralyzed, hospitals, doctors, the cancer that killed my mother, dying unexpectedly, dying for a stupid reason, dying painfully, and worst of all, dying alone. But I'm not afraid of power, which is why I work in the White House. You got it. You nailed it. But here's the thing that Scott is the best at. And this is what the difference was with everyone else who was reading anything is when it gets to those lines, the intellectual impact of Barbie dolls, which is obviously said with the wink and the nod, Scott, I always felt got the joke. And when it gets to letting my father down, he gets dead serious because he knows you mean that one. And I know it's such a small nuance, but there is nothing more beautiful or more intimate or more sexy than someone who is gets your joke and man, he always got what I was going for when it came to that that wink and nod. And once you get that, then that intimacy is always going to be there for the reader. Hmm. Everyone else was just reading words. They were just going, I know how to read and I have a good voice. But you know, I can't tell you how many interviews I do with DJs across the country who tell me, I want to read your next book. I'm going to read your next book. And I always say, no, you have a good voice, but being an an audio narrator is to be an, an, an fantastic and amazing actor. And I know Scott, and I know, I know his love of acting, his love of old films, his love of, you know, all these incredible things. It's not just reading the words, but it's acting all these characters out and bringing them to life. And if you can't do that, then you can't be, you know, as good as he is. And, and beautiful part is as in any art form, because it truly is an art form. Very few people can do what he does. Agreed. Because I think Scott isn't afraid of silence. I think it, it's very important to know when to let a word rest for a beat and then move on with it. And I think you are so good at that. Thank you. I'm, I'm grateful. Um, I think there's a grammar to silence. I think what we say through silence is as important as what's being said verbally. Joe, I know that you know Paul Rubin. He's a marvelous coach, a wonderful teacher. And he always encourages people, and I've taken to doing the same thing. He always points out to people that there's a lot of black on the page. All those printed words, they are printed in black. He says, remember that you have to play the blank part, too. You have to play the white on the page. And I tried to never forget that. I will tell you, as, a, as the, someone who plays with words, and I obviously do the, the nonfiction, like the Nazi conspiracy, but... I also do comic books. Comic books have a way to do silence. I can show Batman in one panel and then in the next panel have him say nothing, but the drawing's there. And then you go to the third panel, it still says nothing. And I, can, and I, I think you're completely right, Scott. There is a grammar to silence. 
the hardest part in terms of coming and being a novelist is you have to build the silence. It's just not there. I wish I had that trick because I always use it in comics, but in a novel, you got to kind of describe something else to let the silence fill the space. And it is one of the most effective tools in the knife draw. Mm. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, look at the, uh, look at that phrase that uh, Lee Child made famous. Reacher said nothing. That speaks volumes to me. Uh, I'm jealous of him for that. He's a pal, so I can only say that I'm screw him for that. (laughs) (laughs) And while we're talking about silence, I'd also like to bring up nuance, which I think is also really important. And Scott, you were called upon in the Nazi conspiracy, not just to have different accents, because this book takes place literally around the world. But at times, these are men whose voices we're familiar with, like FDR or Churchill. Tell us about the decisions you made about narrating them, because you did not mimic them. I think if I had attempted to mimic them, I think that's what you would have come away from the book with, for good or ill. I think if I was trying to be Rich Little and do an FDR impression or a Churchill impression or a Stalin or... Hitler impression that the success of the book would have rested on my ability to to do those convincingly, but that's not the strength of the book. The strength of the book is the writing. So what I did is I, in each of those languages, or in the case of uh, Churchill, of course, it was, you know, in the case of that accent, there is a cadence that all four of those men had. And when I was reading aloud the Declaration of War, FDR's address to Congress, December 7th, you know, a day that will live in infamy. I embraced the cadence of it without trying to do the voice. With the eyes of the world on him, the president begins to speak in a clear, methodical tone. There are the words he dictated to Grace Tully the day before. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Roosevelt doesn't use any arm movements in his speech. He needs to keep both hands on the podium to support his full weight. As a result, he only uses head movements for emphasis. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces, he continues. Then, after a pause, I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. Also, when we got into the Stalin sections, I don't want to be speaking in such a thick Slavic accent that you can't understand the words. Those are paramount. That's the most important thing. Again, I I will err on the side of rhythm and cadence. I I aim to be more authentic than accurate. I would rather go for the emotional authenticity and maybe bring in a little bit of the cadence of the accent to suggest. But the thing is, is people forget that listening is an active experience. I may be narrating, but the listener is hearing it and interpreting it themselves as well. And I don't want to do too much of that work. I don't want to take away their job. I just want to do enough to stimulate their imagination, to connect them to the words, to the story, and then 
let the words carry the rest. Brad, when you write, are you seeing this play out in your head? Always. I have to see it. I, I mean, I feel like, you know, and I didn't know this when I started, but we've since worked on TV shows. But what I was doing in my head is when you do a TV show or a film, you block out the whole scene. You figure out every angle you're going to look at it from. Someone once said to me, when you paint your own house, you make love to your house. And to me, when you when you do a scene in a movie or a television show, you make love to the scene. You literally look at it from every angle, figure it out, and then you start filming. And I didn't realize it until we started doing work in TV, but that's what I was doing for years while I was writing is I need to know everything that's happening in that room, not just what the characters are feeling, which is, of course, the most vital thing, but even... You know, if you're in a parking lot, there's a dumpster. What's in the dumpster? Are there rats? Are there pigeons? You know, is there a bus stop across the street? What's coming by? What are you looking for? What's that thing that's happening? I need to see the entire thing. And, and in fiction, I can just add another detail that I find interesting. In this case, what was so fascinating is the details just kept showing up over and over and over again. There, there's a moment in the book where I talked about Otto Skorzeny and and his secret mission that he goes on. And I don't want to ruin the scene, but he goes on a rescue mission for the Nazis to rescue one of the most important people at that moment to Adolf Hitler. I mean, it takes him to the top of a mountain, coming from a hang glider, coming down, crashing and finding guards and finding people and finding guns. And all these little tiny details are what make it real. And when you get a moment like that, you just know as a writer, stop here, slow it down as we were talking about before and, and, you know, make sure that that reader can see that same thing that you're seeing in your head. Cause if they can't, they're not going to be interested. It's not just about telling you what happened on such and such a date. That is not interesting. Those are just facts. What makes a good story is making you feel the tension and, you know, how you would feel in that moment, how you're experiencing in that moment. You, when you listen to Scott talk, he's been doing it the entire time. He's always talking about how the listener is receiving it. And his emotional IQ is so high, he's aware of that while he's doing his magical craft. And I think that's what makes a good story. Good stories are not just about interesting plots. The best stories that you love are the ones that are actually about you, where you see yourself in there. Not physically, of course, in there. We're not in World War II here, but you know what it's like to experience a horror and what you would do and what what you would do if you were being tested by the worst horror you've ever seen. Those are things we suddenly relate to. Are you strong enough or are you weak? Could you stand up to the enemy or would you cave? And when you can start engaging your listener and your reader like that, then you get the best story of all, which is the story of yourself. Honestly, I was going to end actually with a question about storytelling and its importance. And you certainly just spoke to that, Brad. Scott, I'd love to know your thoughts about this as well. Oh, gosh. I work much better when I have a script to read from. Uh, <laughs> but, no, it's true. I think it's it's your ability to see yourself in the story that is going to be of first and, and foremost importance. You know, I always encourage people, and Brad knows the, the term, the logline. When you're writing a script, it's basically, well, what is the basic essence of a story? And I always look at um, Field of Dreams, or the book that it came from, Shoeless Joe. And whenever I ask people what that book is about, they always talk about baseball and, and the Iowa cornfield and dead ball players coming back to life. And I say, no, that's the plot. What the story is about 
He's a guy who just wants to play catch with his dad. But his father has passed, so he can't. So that's why he came up with the plot to bring these people back to life. And I always say when you're, re when you're narrating a book, what is it at its most essential? And had I narrated that book, it would have been a totally different story if I would have narrated it when I was 30. My father passed this last year. I would narrate that book completely differently now. You have to see yourself in the story. It's not a zero-sum game, you know, uh, to, to quote another one of Brad's titles, the, the zero game, but it's, it's not a zero-sum game. There's the story, what the author is giving you, but then there is how you see yourself within it, I think is all important. By the way, no movie makes me cry like Field of Dreams. And this is why we're friends, Scott. This is why our sensibilities are the same. I mean, that movie, when you were talking, I, in my head I went, said it's about his father. And yes, when you can get to that essential point, then you're in the human condition. Yeah. Gentlemen, I think that is a wonderful place to leave it. And thank you both so much. Thank you, really, for days, weeks of wonderful listening between your writing, Brad, and your narrating, Scott. Huge thanks to you and thanks to my partner, my uh, who, who is truly my partner. That's how I see these books. They that Scott has been my partner for two decades now. It's pretty incredible. So I love you, pal. Joe, I always appreciate you. You are always asked the best questions. You know that. I love you too, Brad. And thank you, Joe. I'm so grateful. What we do, what all of us do, all three of us, it's a privilege. And I'm grateful every day. Amen. That was award-winning author Brad Meltzer and Golden Voice narrator Scott Brick. The Nazi Conspiracy, co-written with Josh Mensch, is their latest collaboration. It's published by Macmillan Audio. This has been an extended edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. Don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Joe Reed. Thanks for listening.